Hey there, and welcome to the Project A podcast. Product analytics relates to tracking, storing, analyzing, and visualizing data on how your users interact with your digital product, like a website or an app. We recently organized the fourth edition of our BAD meetup and invited two experts on this matter, namely James Arch, senior product analyst at N26, who took us through their journey of getting to a very sophisticated state in A-B testing, and Ilya Block, director of product at Blinkist, who touched in general about data-driven product development. Right after these two inspiring talks, we sat down for this quick podcast, touching upon the role of inspiration in product development and also practical advice on what you can do to elevate the product analytics expertise at your company. Enjoy. Project A podcast. Good evening again and thanks for, for joining us tonight here at Project A. My name is Ole Bostorf, as you have seen here for the past minutes. And yeah, I'm happy to do this panel now with the two of you. I think there's still a lot of questions uh, coming from the audience later on. And you sit there. And you also touched upon qualitative research. So we saw a bit, I think, when you um, talked about the feedback that the external freelancer is building for Blinkist. How do quantitative and qualitative research sort of align where, where, when the two of you are trying to Im improve the product? Is, there, is this a complementary relationship? Does this sit all in the product team? I'm really interested how, how you sort of um, set this up because we see in, in, in our portfolio that unfortunately it doesn't play a big role. So maybe you can say some words on that. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, for us it plays a really big role, uh, the qualitative feedback. So we have, um, within our design team, we have two UX researchers. Um, so we basically have a UX research team, and they they play a major role. Whenever we want to do something big, or when we're not sure what to do, user research is a big input into this. Um, and we now actually the data team and the UX research team are very close. So often, for example, we ran an analysis recently that the BI team came up with to look at temporal segmentation and to look at like how times of day influence how people use the product and how long they retain. And then we saw that there's a lot of usage in the morning and afternoon, which we think reflects the commute time, the people using a certain commute. So then the next step is actually now to do, to actually talk to our customers who commute and better understand what is their context, how are they using the product, what are the problems they're having, et cetera. So I think it, it, it works well when you have both and it's a really tight loop. Uh, so it's going like Between back them. and forth, we found this, can you validate it from a qualitative side? Yeah, exactly. Or we found this qualitatively, people are complaining about something, let's look at the data and actually understand what's happening there. I, I think we're trying to move in that direction. Like, I think historically we've been almost quite siloed teams at N26. So we've had like a really strong user research function for about like a year and a half now. We have like 10, 15 user researchers doing mostly qualitative research. Um, but we haven't done a good job so far of like knitting the two together. And I think the two together, I mean, yeah, something like this, yeah. So we take it like very seriously, basically. Um, I think where we haven't done a good job is like tying in those like quantitative insights with the qualitative, like as you said, like feeding off of one another. And I think that just comes from like basically 
putting people in the same room together basically like getting them to work tightly in projects where there's one goal and you're kind of working in like a cross-functional style team um we haven't really done enough of this i think it's like something that's super valuable you see like all the like spotify have a great example of this where they have almost one insights team and they don't they have like a spectrum of like qualitative to quantitative and they don't necessarily even have this like super strict definition of like okay you're a qualitative you're a quantitative so for sure, it's like a super useful thing that everyone should be doing more of, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe one, one thing to add is I think um, it's amazing when you have dedicated UX researchers who know how to do this. But if you don't have them, you should still be doing this, right? Yeah. It should be the product manager, the business owner, whoever. Like, somebody needs to be talking to customers or you're not doing your job, basically. So I think no matter, like, this is not a, it's not my personal opinion. I think one of the, just to add to it, like, the difficult thing often is, People will come to us in the product analytics team looking for a why. They'll be like, can't you just look a little bit deeper and work out exactly why that customer did this? Like, why are they a salary account user or why are they doing so many transactions? And as much as you kind of smash the hammer on the, on the SQL or whatever, it's not going to come out like, oh, that they, you know, uh, like, there's no magic there. So I think, why would we do that when we can just ask the customer? It's like a big thing that sometimes we have to kind of push back on and say, great, we can try and like tease out exactly the click flow they went through and what they were feeling that morning, but we could just ask them. And then yeah. that whole bit is solved and yeah. that whole bit is solved and we can move on to do something else. Yeah, people yeah. sort of tend to forget about this post. Yeah, for sure. It's actually something that we ask in our interview sometimes. Like, hey, how would you like go about actually learning this another way? And it's amazing the amount of people who go, oh, I don't know, look closer at the data more? Yeah. <laughs> Just more analysis. Yeah, more. <laughs> Somebody from the audience maybe like to share how in their company quantitative and qualitative is sort of interplaying? Sure. One of the problems is when you do quant analysis and compare it to qual analysis, the results are different. And this is a, a question that always comes up. So what is true? Is quant true or is qual true? And uh, we have come uh, to the conclusion that at the end, qual should always be in the lead and quant should be in the background to, to prove, well, find a more fun, better foundation of the qual uh, results. Uh, because uh, qual is exactly like, like people talk. Mm -hmm. uh, if you talk about quant uh, results, then uh, there is always some kind of interpretation of what someone has done mm. in comparison to many others. But at the end, you want to understand the single <coughs> person, and uh, that is only possible to quant. Nice. We do, once a year here in our office, the Project A Data Days, where we invite all data teams from our portfolio to give talks. And last year, one of our investments called Cru, they do this medical telephone app, they're really successful in Sweden, and they were talking about this, the interplay between qualitative and quantitative, and I think they made a nice metaphor saying that if you would only count on quantitative, you would always optimize on like this local maximum, further trying to squeeze this one key metric that you're trying to improve, and they bring in their qualitative researcher, which is a super senior guy, to actually help them redefining this local maximum and, and trying to reach for, for the perfect global maximum and, and taking sort of the heads out of a very specific thing. So I'm very much like this, this metaphor. Um, 
Something else I want to touch upon is that the two products that, that the two of you are building, they have sort of a free and a paid version. We touched upon the soft paywall already. How do you determine which features can already be seen by users using the free version versus the paid version? I feel like this is a complex analytics analytical problem because you would want to show features that lead to them signing up and becoming paying customers, but then maybe also not giving too much away. So I guess it's a bit like free versus paid. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things about this is that, well, we have two main problems, I think. One is like you can, it's quite hard to continually change this. You kind of want to go to the market with like a coherent product where you say, these are the things in our free one and these are the ones that are in our premium. If you change that every month, people get confused, people are on different levels of tier. Like if we're both listening to the uh, to Blinkist, for example, and you have more features than I do and we pay the same, like people are not going to be happy. So deciding at a point in time is always the hard thing for these kind of problems. Like we need to know like, you know, now for my user base, like what, what can we offer, right? As like a hearing thing for at least probably six months to a year. And then the other problem we have now that we're kind of a global company is we want like one coherent product set across like we have those three tiers that I kind of put up. Like we want it to be similar and global across most markets, but also there are different niches and hooks in each market. So how do we make that global offering also kind of localized as well is like an additional challenge of, because really like those local nuances are the things that drive people to Pay, pay more, right? There's like, we've tailored the product in such a nice way for that market that people really want to pay more for it. Um, it's honestly like something that we're battling, battling with continually, <coughs> like how can we tier things correctly? <coughs> That's oh. interesting that you're able to customize a banking app in a way that you're obviously better than another one. Well, yeah, I think it's, Think about the banking sector, like it's actually super local. Like most people, there's, there's very few global banking players, right? And if they are, they kind of have subsidiaries in each country. So like already banking is quite localized. The challenge of making that global or at least across multiple markets, yeah, is something that we're like kind of struggling with at the moment. Like trying to have one coherent app for everyone that everyone understands. But of course, like in the US, for example, we've just launched, completely different approach to money. Like we kind of have a checking account here in Europe, which is um, most people use debit cards, that's fine. In the US, no one really pays on the debit card. So those kind of nuances like really dramatically change how we have to A, go to market and B, monetize the customers as well. So I'm like there's analytics we can do, but fundamentally it's a lot about like product market fit as well. So I don't, I personally don't even see that necessarily as an analytics style question. Yes, we can support with insights, but a lot of it is like, can we just have a product which um, is attractive in a certain market? I guess for us, it's honestly something we haven't invested enough in. Um, so we have a free experience, but it's pretty limited. You get one, one sort of semi-random book a day that you can read or listen to. Um, what's kind of, I guess what's interesting is that actually for us, the free experience influenced the paid experience. So we, at one point, this idea of this like one book a day is something we tested only for free users. Um, and then we saw that when they, you know, and when they subscribed, it would go away. And we saw a lot of people asking for this thing back because they liked this idea of like, just give me one thing. I don't want to have to make so many choices. Just like, tell me one thing, I'll focus on it. And then I'm more satisfied. 
Um, so it's moved in this direction, but we we haven't yet really prioritized like rethinking what the, the free experience should look like. But isn't that a huge untapped potential sort of? I'm not sure how the user base is structured, but I imagine that the free users are almost as big as the paid ones, or I don't know. Or bigger, yeah. Free, yeah. yeah, so that's why yeah. would... Yeah, um, it's just, I think for now we see that, like we, we, we kind of still feel like the core experience needs more work in terms of what the product offering is, the content that we want to offer, these things. And then I think once we're, once we're a little bit happier with what the value is, then we can find different ways of slicing it for the free user. Um, but because we're going through so many paid product changes, it would be, it feels like it would be a weird time to also start experimenting and like slicing the free experience. From an organizational setup, would you <coughs> still have all the product people working on, uh, one product team working on the free and paid version, or would you have dedicated teams for each versions? And the same goes for markets. Would you have one product team working across all markets? Or since you're saying they have to be tailored, are you end up building 26 products with 26 products? <laughs> and 26. That's what we call it. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah, no. Um, I think, yeah, great question. I think we kind of have a matrix kind of style structure. There are some things which are kind of global across all our product teams. And we use like shared resources for that. But then there are teams who are like specializing in tailoring the product in certain areas. Um, so that's kind of how we have approached it. Um, but yeah, I think on the, on the paid um, uh, free thing again, like, for us, like the, the free experience is like what drives growth. So I think depending on like, like kind of where we're at, like in our like life cycle as a company, sometimes, as you said, like growth is a priority. You're prioritizing pushing people down that standard funnel, showing that you can grow and acquire users. And then sometimes you're like, okay, we need to start trying to monetize customers and your focus really changes to like, how many people can we push into this membership tiers? Can we monetize customers better? Can we retain customers? And I think that's like where these questions become much more pressing. Like, I, th I think we probably yeah, didn't think about it too much when we were like really early on, like push people down standard. Yes, we can cross out like a few people into our premium products, but like as we become more mature, we need to like start to be able to like, you know, like turn a profit basically in in the long run like you know we don't want to become we work or whatever so we just want to like <laughs> slowly shift ourselves like moving ourselves that way rather than just like growth for growth's sake right i think that's uh, also something that comes into that kind of discussion but you're an actual tech company though. <laughs> <laughs> do you have so just to to follow up on what you said do you actually have like a team dedicated to a specific market or is it like how, how does this? Yeah. So n we we didn't used to, okay. but as we expand more now, we do. We have like a specific kind of European markets team who have different su smaller sub teams focusing on different features in uh, different areas. And then our US operation is actually quite separate almost, but also delivering specific US products and features. Oh, okay. How would you structure the product team? Is is there a free product managers or product owners more focused on the free or paid version or? So right now we structured more around, sort of around like parts of user experience. So we have um, a discover team that then is very much focused on curation, recommendation, personalization. How do we get people to find the right content? Then we have a content consumption team that's more focused on what is the audio experience like? What's the reading experience like? This, this set of things. Um, then we have a, a team that's actually still not fully launched, but we're adding 
more focused on kind of what happens afterwards. How do you manage everything you've learned already? How do you see your progress, like this part? Um, and then we have two growth teams, one focused on web and one focused on mobile that does everything further up the funnel. So we're thinking of slicing things kind of this way in terms of where the user is in the product for now. Um, I think if we wanted to focus on free experience, um, we could either we could put a team specifically on this, but we might also say that for you know for discovery, think think about the free user as well as the paid user and find yeah, the right split. Sort of a funnel thing already. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, may I ask whom do you whom uh, who is in this team? Like when you're talking about the team, are you talking about only product managers or about somebody else? Yeah. So we we use like squads or mission teams or whatever. So we have um, design. QA developers on different platforms in the team, data scientists sometimes. Um, now we're actually adding CRM to this as well. So we, we, we ideally want every team to be pretty independent and be able to make, make their own changes without having to borrow people mm -hmm. from other places. And that's how you also like build OKRs based on specifically on the core. So we, I, like how we build OKRs now is not reflective of how we want to be building OKRs. We're still figuring it out, but ideally, yes, we want to have like higher level company-wide OKRs. And then we, we right now split everything into kind of growth and retention, so that we might have OKRs at that level and then at the squad level below that. Yeah, but it, it's tricky. Like we've been, we're on like, I think second or third iteration of OKRs and still like doesn't feel quite right. For us. I don't think anyone does them well. Yeah. Yeah, it's super hard to get right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> With OKRs, I mean, one basic problem is I think it's really hard for. Um, so there's uh, there's a good article by John Cutler if if you know him. I, we can yeah we can talk about it later. But he basically talks about how you can set goals. Like there are eight different levels of hierarchy at which you can set goals. Um, at the top you have impact, which is like business impact. Then you move more towards outcomes, which is like what do you want your users to do. And at the bottom is output. So like what's the thing you're building. And ideally, we want our objectives to be at the impact level. It's like, what is it we're really trying to achieve um, without being prescriptive of how to get there? Um, but it's really hard to write these. So people just naturally end up writing more about solutions than problems. And then it takes a lot of mental gymnastics to like, be like, no, OK, that's a solution. But like, what is the problem that you're, you're trying to address? Um, and also, key results are hard to come up with. Like, what is the best way to measure this thing? Um, and yeah. there's always this big danger that people sort of game their own key results, right? Because you can take certain actions that are not actually having a positive effect on the business to sure. still reach your key results. So that's why we also see in our ventures, it's a long iterative process, but some actually also give up yeah. Yeah. because it's not the right time. <laughs> no goals. No goals. <laughs> Just <laughs> cruising along. Yeah. <laughs> More uh, questions from the audience? Um, so both of you working in the like fastly growing companies. So at the same time you're implementing this business intelligence logic. How do you actually measure the business impact of the company growing anyway? I mean, product is expanding at the moment. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so we're coming from different sides, I yeah, guess, yeah. right? So for us, um, I work on the product team, so I don't have to. Uh, show that BI is having an impact, but um, we are constantly asking for more BI support. So we are, we are the ones, we're probably, we're not the loudest, marketing is also pretty loud in this respect, but we're always asking for more, we're asking for more analysis, 
We're asking for more tools. And so, because for us, it's just about being able to make better decisions faster, um, which is really hard to do without data. Um, so for example, we're now in the process of adding amplitude because we realize that we can't just rely on BI to do all of the work. We want to be able to do some of this ourselves. So we want to have a self-serve uh, BI tool. So I think it's just, for us, it's just like so inherently clear that we need this data that it, there's no question of the value. We don't have to put numerical value to it. It's quite triggered when you were saying that. There's like a lot of flashbacks to yeah. people going, more data to <laughs> me, <laughs> more analysis. Um, I, think I, I think it's a super valid question of like, when everything looks rosy, like you're growing by whatever thousand customers a month, like how do you still tease out where you might be missing things? I think one thing we try to do, and I think Robin will laugh at this, but like we try and segment on like cohorts like you were doing. So say like, great, we have some old customers who are doing this kind of behavior and we're retaining them over this length of time or whatever, but also look at like who are those newer customers joining? Are they the same quality? Like are we retaining them as well as we were six months ago? Yes, your top line can be like rocketing, but if you don't, if you don't spot that like retention problem in your newer cohorts early enough in like six months, like your customer curve starts coming down like in terms of who your active customers are. So it's about like not focusing on those like big vanity metrics of whatever it happens to be for like your app, like clicks or logins or whatever. It's like trying to like basically scale for growth and all the metrics that you have and say, okay, what actually matters here is like, like how active are the customers um, who we managed to retain, for example, and like how is retention trending over time as well? Because otherwise, yeah, you're right. Like you could just say, great, we're 4.5 million customers. Fantastic, we've, we've done our job, but actually there's so much more to unpick, I think. Nice. I think we are almost out of time, right, Salim? So maybe to have some very practical takeaways for our audience, let's say they come to work tomorrow and want to start improving product analytics expertise at, at their company. So what are some, some steps, some advice that, that, that you would yeah, that you would basically give on do these three things and you're already a lot further on your path to maybe getting to the next stage of what you want to find. Do you want to go? I'll try. Thanks. It's your birthday, so it's fine. Thank you. <laughs> so, I, so I guess I'll, I'll try to speak about it from the PM perspective. I think the first thing, um, is focus. So like I said, there was a moment where we had this like really cool, so like the, the head of BI and I came up with this framework of KPIs and we built this beautiful tree and we had a dashboard and it was useless because people had no idea where to focus, what to look at, and they were just trying to optimize for too many things at once. And so I think the best you can do with a product team, for example, especially because also my experience is like some PMs are better at data, some are not as good. So you also have to figure out what's the like sweet spot. Um, I think the best thing you can do is pick, be very specific, pick like the one, two, three maybe metrics that matter, and then train muscle around them of like what is it like to experiment, what is it like to set up A-B tests in the right way, what can you expect in terms of results, how do you set benchmarks. It just takes a lot of repetition to get good at this. So I think that's really important for a product team. Um, the second thing, I don't know yet what the outcome of this will be, but we're pretty hopeful that Amplitude will help. Um, I think it's... It, yeah, empower people to look at data. Um, I think in, in a smaller company, it might mean that like, send some people to take SQL classes so they can do their own queries, queries if they need to or whatever. But I think there's just like, 
yeah, I think it's really nice when you can give people the tools to actually explore and be open-ended. Um, otherwise, I think with, with the way we work with BI now is like, they're just, they're, they're not enough people and they have a lot to do. And so, you know, of course, everything is kind of on their shoulders. Um, and I think that's unfair to them and also unfair to the PMs who just want to kind of like, like dig, dig in the data and see what's there. So I think empowering people to, to get access to data is really important. Um, that's two, but. That's already empowered yeah. focus. Yeah. I take that. I'm going to answer on what I should do tomorrow morning because it's also my job to make sure product analytics is going well. <laughs> so the first thing I should definitely do is go ahead and document the data that we have at N26. I think like we are constantly creating new data sources by like growing and adding like whatever new microservices every week and you can with the best will in the world implement a really nice BI tool which everyone can use but if people don't know what the data is that you give to them people are so lost and so confused by it all that like there needs to be some place where they can go where they say, okay, great, I now know there's like only whatever it is, three or four tables I actually care about here. Um, but yeah, it's something that is always an uphill battle to keep stuff up to date in terms of documentation. It's a very boring answer, but I think it's definitely the correct answer for number one. <laughs> uh, number two, um, I think definitely to your point of like, try and agree on some common measures basically. I think we also have got to a point, um, certainly like a few months ago, where we were kind of in this KPI zoo, basically, of there's like a thousand things that we're measuring. There's all different types of active user this, active user that. Like if you can get some agreement on, as you said, focus on like whatever it is, two or three, four KPIs that everyone says, okay, these are the ones um, that we're going to focus on at least for whatever it is, six months, and then you can change them, whatever, but try and get some common agreement and just start to use those all the time. Because otherwise, the more people add and make up their own stuff, the more confused people get about what you're actually talking about in terms of analytics. And then, yeah, kind of boringly on the third one, I also kind of agree, like try and take some steps to empower people. If you're technical, to like go out and use data themselves. There are some great tools out there, like I think Amplitude is one, we're using Metabase, where anyone in the company can go in and start querying data. We're also running SQL classes for the company. So yeah, like if you're like a data person, go out and try and get other people to start using data every day, because one, you won't get as many requests. Um, as you said, you're probably leaning on people in BI a lot to give you insights. So the more that if you're in those teams that you can get other people to do your work for you, um, the better it will be. Yeah, also my three. Nice, yes. very cool. So focus on what's really important and which key metrics actually drive the business and then empower key people to, to generate insights themselves and document. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys. <laughs>